host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Jack. Hi, Jack. What's going on, man? We're getting some actual winter weather here in Montreal, and I'm in a really good mood because of that. Yeah, we got some in Vancouver last week, and uh, it totally shut the city down for a, for a few days. So uh, I totally get that. I imagine our standards for what qualifies as winter weather, though, are uh, are slightly different based on our locations. But uh, this is our first show together of 2024. I think it's terrific timing because we had already planned to do this show. But since then, uh, over the weekend, the Islanders made a coaching change, and since Generally, uh, when I have you on, we talk about systems and tactics and, and coaching and player usage and all that good stuff uh, that makes for 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 good content for us here today. So let's talk a little bit about the Islanders and them replacing Lane Lambert behind the bench with Patrick Waugh. Uh, they made the change on Saturday. Waugh coached his first game Sunday night. It was an overtime win against the Stars. Obviously, uh, way too soon to tell. I imagine... There's also going to be, you know, it's going to take some time for there to be actually any sort of implementation of different strategy or tactics if Waz even going to do that this season, just because they're going to need actual practice reps and time with the players. So it's too early for that, but I'm kind of curious for your take on it and and just the Islanders as a whole, because I haven't spoken about them much this season, but I think there's a, a few interesting wrinkles that we can get into with them. So I, I've watched the Islanders uh, a few weeks ago uh, during my research process for, for the next Hockey Tactics ebook. And the thing that really struck me is that uh, defensively, they were very passive. So we remember during kind of like the Trots era when they had a lot of success playing like a 1-1-3 and then blocking a lot of shots and then, you know, scoring off counterattacks and being sort of that team that, that gets gets outshot a little bit, but that still are able to control the quality of shots on both ends of the ice. We don't see that anymore. Um, my rule of thumb is, uh, generally speaking, if you're kind of like an average to below average team, then uh, it's difficult to be aggressive all over the ice because you don't necessarily have the horses. Uh, but at least you either want to be aggressive in the neutral zone and then more passive in the D zone or vice versa. And what you don't want to be is passive in all situations because then you're letting the other team inside of your zone and then you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak. And I think for the Islanders, like, you know, because of what I do and, you know, I'll, I'll watch all 32 NHL teams and I'll watch maybe a dozen uh, teams from other leagues and other parts of the world. And they just seem to me like one of the more passive teams through the neutral zone and in the D zone, which isn't a good recipe because then you're relying on your goaltending to cover up a lot of those holes. And then you're hoping to score, <clears throat> sorry, off the counterattack once in a while. But, you know, long-term that just wasn't going to be a sustainable. Well, it's interesting to see how perception tends to to lag behind reality, right? Because I think I still see people talk about the Islanders as if they are that team from the trots years. And and that really just, that wasn't the case last year, but it certainly couldn't be further from the truth this year there. You mentioned some of the stats, like they're 32nd in expected goals against by sport logic, 32nd in slot shots against 31st in inner slot shots against they're conceding about 35 shots per game. And, and the concerning part is it's not just that volume, because I remember, especially in that first year when trots took over and they were having a lot of success, we had all these wars about how good this team actually was because at that time, I think we were still valuing just raw shot attempts and kind of controlling that and using that as a proxy for possession. And we were sort of programmed to think that equated 
to how you should play hockey back then. And that team was always, I think that in that 18-19 season, they were 26th in shot attempt share. And that clearly distorted how good they actually were because if you just kind of trimmed the fat and you looked at it, they were 20th in shots on goal, 12th in high danger chances. And it just basically as quality increased, they got better by that metric, right? And so I think that reflected their approach and the way they were trying to play. This year, that is not the case. Like they're bleeding volume, but also they're bleeding quality against Ilya Sorokin has a 9-10 save percentage and is giving up, you know, by conventional metrics, 3.17 goals against average. And you'd look at that and you'd be like, wow, that's not very good. Well, he is amongst the league leaders with nearly 20 goals save above expected in his 34 games, right? He has been remarkable. And and in particular, at the, at the start of the uh, the broadcast last night, I was watching the MSG feed against the Stars and the broadcast had this stat, which I believe was from Sporologic, that sort of illustrated these concerns, particularly what you're talking about in the neutral zone and off the rush, where they're giving up about 7.9 rush chances against per game, which is worse than the league. And this morning in preparation for the show, I went back and rewatched that game against the Stars. They gave up eight rush chances, which is just in line with exactly that average, right? And in particular, if you look at them, they're all really high quality grade A's that, that kind of left their goaltender out to dry. And so it's just one game, but I imagine any sort of tinkering or adjustments or things that Patrick Waugh could do to the salvage this season and, and, and improve things is going to stem around improving that and finding a way to, to make sure they're just not so porous against the rush. Yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned the first year of the trots era and, and that, you know, that was five years ago, like tons Tons can change in the span of five years, except this Islanders team, like they've made some upgrades, but also just as a whole, I think it would be generous to say that they're an average team in terms of true talent, uh, aside from goaltending, which obviously is the most important position when it comes to influencing the, the, the final results. But, you know, like, sure. Like I think Patrick Wauer, any kind of coaching change and any sort of, uh, an update in their mentality is going to pull them toward average, but but I think that's that's what we're headed toward. Like they're they may not be thirty second defensively, but they they may end up let's say twenty fifth or twenty third or something like that. Like it, they're going to get pulled toward the league average, but I don't think they're all of a sudden going to be an, an above average. Well, and I think a big part of that is Adam Pellick missed like twenty games or so, and he just came back recently, right? And and at his prime during those years, he was one of the most aggressive players at contesting at the blue line and breaking plays up with his reach, right? And so just having him healthy and and playing the way he's capable of when he is healthy would go a long way towards that. I think the the more interesting thing here from the coaching perspective, though, beyond what we just illustrated with the defensive environment, is how they play with the lead because i think that is probably if you're going to make the sort of optimistic case for the islanders being better than their record illustrates and and they're 20 15 and 11 this season 11 overtime losses already so that's 26 actual games where they lost versus just 20 wins is that there's a, a number of those were games where they were actually had a lead at some point they were playing particularly in the third period up and things just completely fell apart. They've had a ton of demoralizing losses where it was sort of last second defeats where they blew games um, in, in very tragic fashion. And so I'm curious for your take on that because the last time we saw Patrick Waugh coaching in the NHL, we, we tend to think back on that era as 
what he did aggressively when they were trailing when the Avalanche were, right? Because he he sort of brought in, in vogue the early goalie polls. But whenever that team was up, I remember them being far too conservative and sort of parking the bus defensively and just trying to hold on for dear life. And, and, and that was a very frustrating point of contention for me. And that's kind of what this team has been doing this season. So I think Patrick Waugh coming in here, one area for improvement is just figuring out how to play more strategically when they're defending a lead, because that's just been, I think, the biggest issue for them this season. So th- that's one area that I don't think I'm I'm very concerned about because, uh, you know, people who coach in the NHL they they're smart people for the most part. I think for the for for the vast majority of cases, and, and they they do a pretty good job of learning from their mistakes, especially when they've had some time and some perspective. You know, Patrick Waugh has been coaching in the QMJHL for the last number of years. Um, you know, I, I saw Scott Wheeler tweeting out about how last year's Memorial Cup winning Rampart team was the most organized, the most kind of uh, the soundest team that he's ever seen at that level, which uh, I would agree with. Like I, I watched that team um, late in the season and they were very good. And, you know, you you don't become a, a Mem Cup winning team and a dominant junior hockey team without playing a lot with the lead. And I think that's an area that, I wouldn't be super concerned about uh, with Juan in his second stint as an NHL head coach. But the one thing I will say is like, there's this phenomenon of people, you know, like teams hire, let's say very successful coaches out of the junior ranks or out of uh, maybe college or minor pro. And I, we, I don't think we should overestimate how much, uh, of that winning gets brought over to the NHL. Because for example, if you look at the ramparts, there were such a loaded up team, like pretty much half the QMJHL contributed players to that team. And they ended up being a juggernaut, you know, after the trade deadline. Um, but like, you know, th- that's not really as much coaching it as, as it is just, you know, having a really strong roster. And I think certainly part of the Rampart success last year was having a very solid understanding of, you know, playing with possession and playing with pressure, but also they just had better players. And, this is a situation that's not going to repeat itself now with the Islanders. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how Patrick Waugh compensates for having just an average roster at best now. Yeah, it's also been like that Avs tenure was nearly a decade ago now, right? So uh, we talk often about how coaches can also evolve and adapt and, and learn as well and and develop certainly behind the bench. So I'm curious to see that because under Lane Lambert, so they led games for the 13th most amount of time so far this season. And in that time, they were just almost like catastrophically bad defensively. Like if you just look at how many shots, chances, goals against, expected goals against, they were surrendering when they were playing with a lead. It was all bottom five. Now the other teams in that tier were San Jose, Columbus, and Chicago, right? Like the worst teams in the league. And they their samples are significantly lower because they haven't really played from from up that much this season. And obviously we know about score effects and the psychological effects and all that about how uh, the motivation and incentive for how hard you're going to push offensively is certainly going to be dictated by what the scoreboard says. But it's just such a delineation for them between like how they play in tied game states, for example, where they're kind of breaking even and everything. And so I think just figuring out it, whether it's being too conservative or, or whatever the issues were, figuring out how to manage those leads a little bit better, you know, it 
goes without saying, but I think that's like where you can have the biggest gains. And so that's why I'm actually kind of optimistic about the Islanders moving forward. Dom has them at about 35% playoff probability. And a lot of those Metro teams in particular are kind of bunched together. Now you look at, they have a minus 18 goal differential for the season. So you'd think, all right, well, this team's not very good. They actually are lucky to have as many points as they have because of those 11 overtime losses. But I'd actually argue like considering how often they've had third period leads and how they've actually looked pretty good for the most part in those situations. I think there's more juice to be squeezed here from that orange. And, and so I'm, I'm very curious to see how Patrick Waugh sort of navigates that. Do you have any other notes on the Islanders or kind of areas that his impact could be felt, I guess, with this team, right? Um, uh, whether it's the defending we mentioned uh, or whether it's just how they use their forwards, right? Because I think... In Lane Lambert's second uh, last game coaching this team, he was using Matt Barzell with like Cal Clutterbuck on the third line. And instantly we saw Patrick Waugh just go back to full-time usage of Barzell, Horvat, and Lee. And those three have been awesome together. And so, yeah, I think if he's just going to do that all of a sudden, just not messing with a good thing is probably going to be the way to go. Yeah, so so I think those are I would say the biggest uh, low-hanging fruits for a while. So first of all, you know, play your best players more. And second is just have your players contest more pucks, whether it's on the ozone four check, whether it's with neutral zone, whether it's in the D zone, you know, they, they may not be able to contest every single puck uh, in every single zone, but I, I would look for some sort of a tactical switch where they become more aggressive in at least one of those three zones. I had a question on the discord from a, uh from a listener named Curtis a while back and, and we did it in a mailbag, but I'm kind of curious for your take on it. Cause I haven't had a chance to talk about it with you. It was essentially to paraphrase, it was kind of bringing up the concept that we generally tend to judge coaches based on, on their team's PDO, right. In terms of like what the percentages are like. And then essentially when things fall too low, teams start losing, they start making a change. And then all of a sudden a new coach comes in and those percentages tend to regress generally and the team starts to win a bit more and just trying to figure out sort of how much of that is a new coach coming in and actually making any sort of adjustments that result in that regression or how much of it would have happened anyways, or how much of it is sort of this human element of players are just motivated because there's a new voice in place. Maybe they're all fighting for, it's a clean slate essentially for them. They're all trying to, um, become the coach's favorite and get more ice time, right? And they have the opportunity to do so right out of the gate. And so they're going to play harder and they're going to play better. How do you sort of weigh all of those things? And I'm, I'm kind of curious for your take, especially with your with your coaching background. Yeah, I mean, it's, I would say it's a mix of all those things. Like certainly I think if, if you think about it in any other industry, like when you are working with a new boss, you want to make the best impression and, and you probably work harder the first two weeks than you did the past two weeks. I think that's just human nature. That's just completely normal. Uh, you you have certain players or maybe were in the doghouse uh, who get a clean slate and who get more opportunities just because the, you know, the, the new coach's aesthetics is not the same as the, the previous coach's aesthetics, right? Like some, some coaches love these hardworking guys who are just giving it all and going, you know, 100% all the time. And then other coaches, maybe they like, players are a little bit more cerebral and slow things down uh, at certain points or, or make more control plays. So when you have a change, sometimes just the style of play that you naturally gravitate toward, it becomes more or less valued. So, so that's a factor. A second factor is I think 
certainly w when you when you are on a bench, it's actually a really difficult place to gather information from just because everything's happening so quickly. And the fact that you're, you're, you know, working 70 hours a week on the same things and you see the same people, like it, it's actually quite a difficult place to make changes from because you don't have that perspective. And then when you have a, a new person coming in, sometimes those, those tweaks do get made. Whereas the, the, the former coach, maybe like he was too close to the action to really see what was going on. And then the final thing it's, it, yeah, like a lot of it is, random, you know, luck or happenstance where, you know, sometimes like you just can't explain those things. Like I remember one season that was with the Toronto Marlies in the AHL and we had catastrophically bad goaltending in the first half of the season. Like it, it seemed like we we're giving up goals on the first shot of the game, like every single game. And we, we ended up making no major changes. Like we didn't change our coach. We didn't change our goaltenders. And then in the playoffs, we actually got above average goaltending. We made the uh, the conference finals and this was back in 2019. So sometimes things just, they're self-correcting, but sometimes they're not. And it's too much of a case by case basis to say for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic about this. Cause I think like, if you especially watch towards NAA and Lambert's tenure, it was actually kind of sad. Just, Anytime something bad would happen, the camera would pan to him and he would just kind of just stand in there ghoulishly. Not that I'm expecting him to all of a sudden be like yelling at players and, and, and trying to get fixes in that, right? Generally, this stuff happens like between games and in the locker room and intermission and all that. But I think for our concerns about this team lacking aggression, I guess, in certain areas of the ice or or, or defending leads, I, I think a guy like Patrick Wall coming in mid-season is going to help in those specific areas, right? So I, I, I think there's reason for optimism here and I'm, I'm excited about it. Now the MSG feed last night, I get that it's a, it's kind of a novelty, but they had like an ISO cam going while the game was happening of Patrick Watt just behind the bench, like tracking him, talking to players as they were coming back on off the ice. And I don't think we need to go that far. Like I, I I'm, I'm cool to see if there's any sort of blowups or interesting interactions, but I don't think we need to be like going zooming out of the game to, uh, to show that, but yeah, I'm going to be tracking this closely and I think it's a, a fun story. All right. Do you want to do uh do you want to do some Winnipeg Jet stuff because you had a interesting thread on Twitter about it and it's certainly a team that I've been talking about quite a bit here in the PDO cast recently but I think for all of our concerns in terms of what we just said defensive issues for the Islanders were you could almost I guess sort of take the exact opposite of that and apply it to what's happening in Winnipeg right now where they've just been phenomenal in terms of suppression and it's not just the goaltending I think the play in front of it deserves a lot of credit as well. Yeah. And ever since I guess the second month of the season, I've had people ask me like, Oh, like, you know, can you do something on, on the Winnipeg jets? Cause, cause I think they're playing better and stuff like that. And I've kind of been putting it off because I, I wanted to see whether that trend is going to maintain itself. And I think, you know, 40 games in like, yeah, like they're, they're a really good defensive team. And for the reasons the the same reasons why the Islanders weren't a good defensive team, which is Winnipeg is aggressive in the neutral zone and they're they're aggressive in the D zone. And they they've had the personnel to make it work. And they also, I would say more importantly, they have really good chemistry on the defensive side of the puck. Like the fours and the D's, like they they really trust each other. And it's like that old Bill Belichick saying, uh, do your job, right? Like everybody's doing their jobs and then everybody's trusting their neighbors to do theirs. And I think that's something that's really helped and something that's really surprised me given that it's basically the same core from, you know, the, the last number. It is, there are some personnel changes, but since December 1st, they're 18, two and two, they've given up 36 goals against in those 22 games, which is just 
astonishing to think about. Now, Connor Hallebuck has a 945 save percentage in that time, which leads the league. And second is his backup, Laurent Brossois, with a 944. And to put that into perspective, the league average save percentage in that period of time over the past two months is 902. So um, if if Jets goalies were performing at that level, they'd have given up like nearly 30 more goals against than they have in these 22 games. But still, I think what's happening defensively is almost more interesting to me because, yeah, it's like Connor Hellebuck sort of bouncing back and having this season is is a great story. But you mentioned sort of how much of it, it with relatively the same personnel just looks night and day compared to last season. And I think in transition in particular, it's really interesting to see, to watch them play and then see how some of the stats bear that out where it feels like off the puck in particular, like you can just sort of see the backtracking from the forwards and and their play there is allowing the defensemen, which are the same defensemen they had last year, to all of a sudden contest much more aggressively in the neutral zone, step up at the blue line, force turnovers there, and then allow them to flip the ice quickly. And so I think that's been really cool to see because you're right, same players, same coach, yet they're just playing drastically differently than last year. And this was a team that, even dating back to the Paul Maurice years, I think one of our frustrations was too conservative. And I remember you had a piece in particular that was sort of looking at how they almost didn't ask their defensemen to do anything, right? Like they put so much of the burden on their forwards to to carry the play at both ends of the ice. And now you watch and they've got the fourth player into the zone, whether it's Josh Morrissey, obviously, but even guys like Brendan Dillon and Neil Pionk flying in off the rush and getting opportunities themselves. And it's just cool to, to see sort of how all of this stuff uh, ties together and the dividends it's paid for them. Yes. So, and I think that what you, you hit, you, you hit the point that that's, I think the biggest change is that it seems to me that the coaching staff trusts their defensemen way more uh, now than before. Like the thing that really struck me when I watched Winnipeg uh, the past few days is that they're trusting their defensemen to make a lot more plays like defensive plays one-on-one. So whether it's when defending an entry, whether it's uh, in the D zone, uh, pressuring a puck. And it seems like these players, like the more trust uh, were given to them, like the more they kind of gain confidence in their own ability. And the the thing that, that really, I think, helps Winnipeg is that their defensemen now, they're able to make these one-on-one defensive stops. So whether it's on a zone entry denial, whether it's on a... Uh, a low cycle, like when you have, let's say, your your the Mellows and Morrisseys and Dillons and you know Nate Schmidt's, like they're actually making stops now instead of just like collapsing to the net and waiting for something to happen. You know, maybe blocking a shot and then surviving some zone time and you know letting Hellebuck you know uh, stop the puck. Uh, they're way more aggressive now than before. And the thing that's surprising to me is that like once you have a defenseman who's maybe around 30 years old, like they kind of lose that extra step that actually really hurts them in the D zone because they're not quick enough to uh, make that transition from defending that front to going for a puck in the corner or, you know, hitting a guy and then grabbing that loose puck. And it, it seems like they're right now, they found a sweet spot between playing aggressive and safe at the same time, um, which, you know, again, it, it kind of surprises me because I, like Sandberg is a guy who I think is 
in his prime physically who can do that. But, um, you know, like Schmidt and Dylan, like I thought for those guys, like they were going to spend the rest of their careers as sort of passive shot blockers. And right now it's, they're, they're doing far more than just. But don't you think that this stuff is sort of inextricable in a way in terms of evaluating the forwards and defensemen? Like I think part of a struggle for us as analysts is just like isolating and evaluating defensive play for individual players because of this. And, and, and what I mean by that is like, yes, the defenders certainly deserve a lot of credit. They're making more plays one-on-one and, and all that. But I think it helps. I mentioned how I feel like the forwards have done, just done such a better job of like cohesively backtracking and providing support. But even in the defensive zone, in terms of like set plays, one a big issue for them in the past was especially on these extended sequences where they were kind of hemmed in and get tired the the effort level would drop off so much for the forwards and then all of a sudden they'd become so vulnerable to some of these backdoor plays in the back post right and then all of a sudden you look now and the wingers in particular are so much more involved at shutting that down and jumping in those lanes and protecting both the defenders but also Connor Hellebuck as well right and so that's one change where they have made because they brought Gabe Velarde, who's phenomenal at that. Nino Niederreiter, who as well, his attention to detail off the puck's great. I mean, even of Vladimir who's obviously playing down the middle for them, but certainly excels at that. So I don't think it's necessarily that big of an accident that the defenders look better when all of a sudden they're getting more support and they're not necessarily on an island. So they're making more plays one-on-one, but I think because of what's going on around them, I just think they're in a much better position to to actually excel at that than they were previously. Yeah, and and I think Winnipeg is an example of a team where like everything that can be going right is going right. Like I think their biggest weakness as a team is, you know, they're not the most creative playmakers. Like, well, if we talk about Boston a little bit later on, like Boston is a completely different approach. But like Winnipeg, I would say is the sort of. Uh, the sort of team that coaches really like to watch just because they do all the things right. And, you know, without a lot of fluff and it's not overly, you know, it's not an overly fancy game that they play, but all the things that coaches really preach, which is whether it's playing fast, whether it's playing tight defensively, whether it's, you know, pressuring the puck, like they do that really well right now. Well, defensively, they're fifth in expected goals against third and fewer slot shots allowed. Only Vancouver gives up fewer chances off the rush, but also offensively, They've jumped, I think Corey Schneider's tracking had them 20th last year in chances off of entries, basically off the rush. This year, they're all the way up to third, and that sort of illustrates that the point I was making of like how their defensemen are getting involved in turning some of these three-on-threes into a numerical advantage with four-on-threes all of a sudden. And I think just watching them, it, it just hammers home the, the, the value in kind of creating kinetic energy when you play right? Like we always talk about movement and having players involved. And every time I have Daryl Belfry on, he seems to be talking about this as well, but it really seems like if all of a sudden everyone is much more likely to receive the puck and factor into the play offensively, I think there's going to be a trickle down effect where all of a sudden everyone is moving. You're going to be much more active, much more involved defensively as well. And it seems like those two things are kind of combining for this Jets team. So yeah, it'll be it's certainly interesting to see them. I think their next three games before the All-Star break are at Boston, at Toronto, and then a home game with a back-to-back against the Leafs as well. So a lot of these uh, defensive stats we've mentioned and goal suppression and this streak of 
two or three or fewer goals against that they're on right now is going to be tested uh, during this stretch. But man, I think there's just beyond those results. I think there's so much to like when watching this team play compared to previous seasons where last year it felt like for large stretches, it was, it was kind of a slog. Even when they'd be winning games, it'd be like, man, I feel like they're leaving a lot on the table with the way they're playing. And this year it seems like they're maximizing everything. Yeah, so for all the coaches out there, like now is a really great time to get all your defensive clips. Just you know, grab some Winnipeg Jets games and look at the way that they forecheck, they backcheck, they play in the D zone. Like great, great examples there. But don't you think like obviously they're they're different teams, and I think their aggression levels uh, certainly aren't the same. But when you think of teams like the Panthers or the Avalanche at their best, who have have more sort of individual skating talent, but even like a team like the Flyers it seems like they've stumbled upon a successful formula here where they're very aggressive at, at closing off the walls and then empowering their defensemen to, to be more active and jump up and try to create turnovers and actually be involved in the North or South game. And then they're just getting significantly better results out of players who previously didn't look quite as good. Like, don't you think there's a little something to that? Well, the the thing in hockey is like the great equalizer is how much and how often and how well you're willing to sprint for the puck or sprint to defend. And it's something that is easy said, but, but not easily done. Like yesterday, I went out to, you know, the, the local outdoor rink and I played hockey uh, with a bunch of young kids and I, I just couldn't do it anymore, man. Like, I know that I'm supposed to be sprinting up and down the ice. I know I'm like... And I was playing against 10 year olds. Like after 15 minutes, I was completely gassed. So it's just like, it's so easy to say, oh, well, all you got to do is just sprint all out down the wall and let the puck hit you and keep the puck in the zone. And then if the puck goes over you, just sprint all out back to your zone and and, de- and defend. But, you know, we're talking about some of the best conditioned players in the world, in which case, you know, that conditioning element, it washes out because everybody's in great shape. Everybody's a, a great skater. And the teams who can sort of leverage that as an enduring competitive advantage, like they're few and far between. Because once again, everybody knows what they got to do and everybody tries to do it. But to actually be able to use that as a competitive advantage means that you got to go one step further. Yeah. I just think if you're a defender on this Jets team, like even as recently as last year, but especially two, three years ago, if the puck's in your own zone and it's like coming up the wall, for you, it's like, all right, I'm not really going to do anything here, so I'm not going to try very hard because it's probably going to go to Kyle Connor and then he's going to try to make six different moves and try to get it out of the zone and then do something on the move, and I'm not really going to factor into this at all, so what's the point of me sprinting up the ice? Where now it's like, all right, Gabe Velarde is definitely going to knock this puck down, make a sweet little play in traffic, and then get it to me as long as I'm on the move in the right place. And so, yeah, getting rush shots and trying to score goals, even though I'm a defender, defensive defender, is still cool. That's going to motivate me. And so it makes sense, I think, that all of a sudden you're seeing these defenders try a little bit harder and and get the results for it. So um, sometimes hockey can be very complicated and difficult, and there's a lot of things we we don't know and don't know how to quantify, but at times it does boil down to very simple concepts as well. And so I think what's satisfying about the Jets team is we're seeing that play out before our very eyes. Okay, Jack, let's uh, let's take our break here. And then when we come back, we'll finish off today's conversation. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back here on the Hockey PDO guest with Jack Hahn. Jack, uh, we did Islanders and Jets off the top. Let's talk a little bit about the Bruins. You sort of hinted about it when we were talking about the Jets. We got a question in particular from Dr. Sanchez asked, how has Boston adapted so well to losing both Bergeron and Krejci? Is Charlie Coyle really a first-line center and quality player, or are they doing something clever to get away with it? Well, uh, I mean, is Charlie Coyle a first-line center? No, he's not. Uh, he's, I think, a, a very good middle six player. Um, and, and the thing that Boston's doing, if you, it's actually not a big secret. Like, if you look at Jim Montgomery's press conferences, like he talks a lot about holding on to pucks and then getting the puck sort of into the middle of the ice or making a better play, uh, which is something that is going to increase their shooting percentage because they're getting better looks. It's going to actually decrease their shot volume because presumably they're not going to convert every single bad puck into a good puck, but also it's going to uh, reduce uh, the opposition shot volume just because Boston is able to hold on to pucks and control the tempo a little bit more. And the thing is, is that uh, depending on what your roster is like, the more you hold on to the puck, the more you control the game and the more you control the game, the less you have to transition defensively. So actually, if we go back to our discussion about the Winnipeg Jets, um, it's sort of the opposite approach where for Boston, uh, for them, if they can control the tempo with the puck under sticks, that takes away from a lot of the pressure defensively. Yeah. Well, okay. First off, just to answer the listener's question, Charlie Coyle isn't a first line center quality player but they're not even using him as such like if you look he's fifth on the team amongst their forwards in five on five usage he's actually playing less than Trent Frederick all situations they're using Pavel Zaka more as him more than him down the middle now you wouldn't know it because they are 28 8 and 9 they're actually playing the aforementioned Jets uh tonight Monday evening for first in in the NHL uh both in terms of points and point percentage but they have slipped a little bit defensively, right? And and certainly, I mean, last year they were historically great, and it makes sense in particular losing uh, the unanimous Selkie winner in Patrice Bergeron that they fall off a little bit. But they're giving up about half a goal per game more than last year. They've fallen to 16th in expected goals against, 26th in inner slot shots surrendered. Now, it hasn't really mattered because their special teams is just freakishly good. They're fifth in power play efficiency, sixth in penalty kill suppression. Their goalies are both phenomenal. Both Jeremy Swayman and Linus Allmark are in the mid-teens in goals save above expected, and and they just never give up bad shots, bad goals against that they're not supposed to save. And then offensively, I think people don't really realize how much... Like when we talk about the MVP, obviously the season Nathan McKinnon is having and Nikita Kucherov and Connor McDavid coming on now, like those guys are going to be at the top of the discussion, but don't sleep on how important David Pasternak is to this Bruins team. 
He's on pace again for 55 goals and 120 points. He has 23 more points than anyone in the Bruins. And they just funnel everything through him now. And he's become their decision maker, both in terms of shot pass. And so you put all those things together. And yeah, I'm surprised that they're once again competing for number one in the entire NHL. But all those things combined, it makes a little bit more sense while they've been able to essentially eat the losses of their top two centers and still keep winning games. Yeah, so... You know, again, like in the NHL, your your success or at least your win loss is going to be driven a lot of uh, from the top of your lineup and your goaltending. And I think Boston still has that, right? Like they've lost Krejci and, and Bergeron, but they still have Pasternak and Marchand and McAvoy, and um, so, so so you know, like they they have good players, and then now their bottom players, their bottom uh, bottom six, you know, third pair of players, they've been coached to hold the puck a little bit longer, uh, maintain possession a little bit more. And at least they're more or less breaking even so that when the big dogs come back, uh, they still play a, a, a continuous sort of possession game and they're able to actually make a difference. But if you look at Pasternak on and Pasternak off, it's like when Pasternak is on, the Bruins are an, are an elite team in terms of possession and in terms of goals. Uh, and when he's off, they're sort of this low event team that kind of just treads water. Yeah. I imagine if he missed any period of time and knock on what he doesn't, them trying to score enough goals to keep winning games would become a pretty uphill battle for them. But I, I do think, you know, Marshan is on pace for 36 goals and he's nearly at a point per game pace. But you look at his 5 on 5 metrics and it's pretty clear that he does miss Patrice Bergeron quite a bit right not only in terms of points where on a permanent basis he's uh as low as he's been in like a decade but his shot and expected goal shares have both dropped below 50 percent for the first time since like the early 2010s it's just a very uncharted territory for him and i mean it's remarkable that he's still playing at this level given the miles he has on him and the hip surgeries and all that um but we shouldn't pretend like they've just been able to sort of keep on moving without missing or, or feeling the impact of not having Bergeron in the lineup. Like you're, you're seeing it, you're seeing kind of the cracks of it in different areas, but because of all the stuff we've talked about and you mentioned there, they've been able to sort of paper over it for now. Right. And and so credit to them for having the kind of infrastructure in place to make that happen. I, I think a lot of organizations wouldn't, um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to, uh, to keep, kind of an eye or a tab on this uh, moving forward. Okay, anything else on the Bruins or do you want to move on to the next topic or, or listener question that we have? No, we still got a few more, so so let's move on. Okay, I, I, we got to pander a little bit to the local crowd here because the Canucks are playing phenomenally well. And I want to ask you about a player in particular, but also we can sort of zoom out and use it as a, as a bigger picture thought exercise. Matea says, it's been so fun watching Niels Hoaglander move around and snipe for his bottom line competition. The shifts are electric and opponents can't seem to keep up with him. As a skilled forward though, why hasn't he found as much consistent success when being elevated in the lineup? Now he's playing on ostensibly a fourth line here with Sam Lafferty and Niels Amon, yet still producing a ton of offense with his Canucks team. In their most recent game on Hockey Night in Canada against the Leafs, of course, scored a beautiful goal where he did exactly that snipe one right past Martin Jones. But you can see the abundance of skill 
that he certainly flashed as a prospect and and early in his career, he sort of bounced back in that regard and he's posting awesome numbers. Yet the listener is right. Like when we've seen him sort of get moved up the lineup and play with Elias Pettersson or play in a top six role, he it hasn't been able to translate and he hasn't been able to sort of scale up that production. I think it's an interesting concept, right? Because we see this all the time where I think of a player like Daniel Sprong, for example, where his scoring numbers are really good. And especially if you prorate on a permanent basis, it's borderline elite. Yet year over year, he doesn't either get the opportunity to play that top line role or where he, when he does, his coach doesn't like it. And all of a sudden he gets back to it, to what he was previously. And then he keeps producing at that level. Um, I'm kind of curious for your take on both Hoglander here, but also just this concept of sort of bottom six or even fourth line players who produce really well, but maybe that's the role they're actually best suited for. So um, I, I've actually followed Hoglander for a number of years now. Um, when he was up for the NHL draft, I interviewed him at the draft combine for the Maple Leafs and we did some video analysis with him. And, you know, prior to that, I'd seen him on playing games on video in his draft year a fair number of times. And I really liked him as a prospect because he was a skilled player who also worked extremely hard. Uh, you know, he's not the biggest guy. He's not, I would say he doesn't have like the the most speed for someone, especially of his size. And what we're seeing now, I think, is just his inherent limitations as a player. And, you know, back when I was in Toronto, like I we were really interested in players who had skill, had intelligence, and and who worked really hard as well. And I think the biggest downside to having those scouting criteria was you ended up missing guys who uh were you know bigger had a, a more projectable physical toolkit and who ended up um you know becoming more impact in each other's because of their physical strength so when niels hognander plays against fourth liners and bottom pair defensemen uh, you know we see that work ethic we see that skill but then when he's in a, in a tougher situation playing against you know a number one center or you know a number one defenseman I just find someone with his physical package gets knocked off the puck a little bit too easy and he doesn't necessarily have the speed or the shot to be an outside threat. So he's got to play inside and that's his game. And, and, you know, that's a great way to play the game. But when you're up against somebody who's legitimately, you know, bigger, stronger, better than you, then you don't really have a lot to fall back on. And one comparable player I would say is Nick Robertson for the Leafs. And again, like I, I see on Twitter time and again that, you know, people say that he should get a bigger role. And I think, yes, like, you know, he, he hasn't gotten consistent minutes in the top six, but same thing with Hoglander, which is when he gets elevated in the lineup, all of a sudden his work ethic and his intelligence and, you know, his shooting, like they don't become factors because he's just not able to win enough battles and enough foot races to really leverage those uh, those strengths. I mean, he's got 14 5-on-5 goals this season, which is tied with Kucherov, Pasternak, and Crosby for eighth most in the league. The Canucks are up 29-15 to 15 with him on the ice at 5-on-5. Now, he's shooting 25% himself at 5-on-5, so that certainly helps. But for a player who's making $1.1 million, regardless of how many minutes he's playing or what the role is, just getting any level of production even resembling that is a massive home run and such a, a a net positive, right? I'm with you on that. I think in particular, like his unique skill set, though you mentioned of the mo like despite not having the elite speed, the motor and the work ethic, along with enough skill to reward 
that work once you get the puck in advantageous situations makes him such a problem for lesser opponents, right? Whether it's going head-to-head with a bottom six line of the opposition, but in particular, I think going up against a third-pair defense group, all of a sudden, they go back to retrieve a puck, they're going to be much more likely to botch that retrieval or make a mistake and turn it over or do something that keeps them hemmed in their own zone. And then all of a sudden, him and the raw speed of a guy like Lafferty, all of a sudden now, they're just causing havoc and then they're turning that into scoring opportunities and he does actually have enough skill um, to sort of take advantage of that when he's able to get the puck in tight, right? So I think it makes sense that he's been very productive like this. I get the natural inclination to sort of see this and be like, man, I want more. Let's get him higher up the lineup. But um, sometimes players are more suited for this because of their particular skill set. And I think Hogletter might be that, but uh, he's still, what, only 22, 23 years old. So certainly not closing the door on a very bright future for him moving forward. Okay. One last question here from Theo, who uh, keeps posting in the Discord asking for first Lifkovsky analysis. Uh, and I, I said, next time I have Jack on, on we're going to talk a little bit about him and reward Theo here. Um, notes that he's playing on a first line with Caulfield and Suzuki, the point production hasn't necessarily matched the eye test yet in terms of how effective he's been or, or you know, especially compared to previously. Um, so I'm kind of curious for your thoughts on Slavkovsky, the way he's playing, the way that line is working, and sort of whether we're seeing enough positives from him here recently. So uh, I, I recently wrote a, a newsletter post uh, comparing Slavkovsky to Valdnishushkin because I, I just think in terms of their build, in terms of their play style, and in, in terms of what I think Slavkovsky ultimately is going to be, I think Nishushkin is a really good comparable. And uh, the thing that I've really liked from Slavkovsky playing with Caulfield and Suzuki is all of a sudden his game makes sense. Okay, like when you play him with two grinders who don't really have a lot of offensive upside, uh, you know, Slavkovsky doesn't, there's really no point in him winning a puck in the corner and then giving to somebody else because the play dies right away. And also there's there's really no opportunity for him to get the puck back uh, with speed and with space to use his shot or use his puck handling ability. Whereas with Suzuki and Caulfield, every time that Slavkovsky is able to use his size and his reach to win a puck, all of a sudden he's giving it to a player who actually knows what to do with it. And then eventually, um, you know, that materializes into a, a more interesting offensive sequence. The thing that I'm still kind of not sold on is despite um, what his physical patch package suggests, uh, Slavkovsky is not a very good four checker. Like, He's he's quite good with his skating when he's dictating. So when he has the puck on his on his um, on his stick, um, he accelerates really well. He uses crossovers. He can use cutbacks. But when he's forechecking someone and he's you know has to react with the skating, it seems like he doesn't really quite uh, turn uh, you know well enough to really close and to uh, create turnovers. And this is something that I think in the next couple of years, like he'll get better at. And then once he does that, he'll be one of the, one of the better play driving wingers in the league, because right now with two skilled players, like his game just makes sense. Yeah, it certainly does. He also still 19 years old, right? I imagine that in terms of sort of anticipation and reads off the puck is going to come with more reps and he's getting very valuable ones playing on that line. And 
they're breaking even at five on five and all the important metrics, right. On a team that's not very good. So I think that is highly encouraging. And, and I know the production is still like in the grand scheme of things for a first overall pick, it's nothing to necessarily write home about. He's got the six goals and 18 points this season in 46 games, four of those goals and 10 points in last 15 games. And I think there is a lot of encouraging stuff you're seeing in, in terms of him actually sort of leveraging some of those physical tools into into functionality right and actually making plays with that line so um i want to watch more of him certainly but i i think it's very encouraging and and yeah i think especially compared to if we had answered this question maybe you know a month or two ago i think uh the perspective might have might have looked different so um yeah very encouraging okay jack let's uh let's get out of here i'll let you plug some stuff on the way out let the listeners know um either what you got in the works or whether there's a uh, 2024 hockey tactic update, I'll let you, uh, I'll give you the floor here. Yeah. So I'm, I'm juggling a few different things right now. Uh, our baby's nine months old. So I'm, I'm a little bit slower at updating uh, w- whether it's my Twitter feed, whether it's my, my newsletter, but you know, I'm t- trying to make progress every day. And also in the next couple of months, I'll have hockey tactics, 2024 uh, released. So uh, as usual, it's the ebook with all the illustrated uh, X and O's and, you know, system sheets of all 32 NHL teams this year. Um, I'm going to also, uh, you know, ship a bonus chapter with PWHL teams, which I'm really excited about. I've watched a lot of games. and I think this is an area of the game that's uh, has a lot to offer. So perhaps next time we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, but uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter, J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. Uh, yeah, that, that's about it for me. Awesome, buddy. Well, keep up the great work. Looking forward to having you on again soon. Uh, if you want to get questions in for next time we have Jack on, whether it's player development stuff or strategy or tactics, both on an individual and team level, uh, hop in the Discord. The invite link is in the show notes, and you can post the questions there, and we'll use them next time we have Jack on in a couple of weeks. And that's going to be it for us today. We'll be back Wednesday with Kevin Woodley in studio doing a goalie episode. So looking forward to that. In the meantime, thank you to everyone for listening to the Hockey PDO cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.